Hello, I'm Andrew Stephen, one of the editors of the Journal of Consumer Research. In the April 2021 issue of JCR, there's a great paper titled Re-examining the Experiential Advantage in Consumption, a Meta-Analysis and Review. It's authored by Evan Weingarten, who is at Arizona State University, and Joe Goodman, who's at The Ohio State University. I wanted to learn some more of the behind the scenes of this research. Meta-analysis work is notoriously challenging, time-consuming, and probably also pretty frustrating. Uh, so it's great to see a meta-analysis paper in JCR. So I turned to the authors, Evan and Joe, to find out more about what motivated them to work on this project, some of the lessons learned along the way, and any advice that they have for researchers who are working in this area, as well as doing meta-analysis work. Evan and Joe, thank you very much for taking some time to have a chat to me today. I guess we should start at the start. What gave you guys the idea in the first place to embark on the project that ultimately led to this paper published in JCR? So in 2017, uh, I got a bit curious because uh, throughout sort of my young, young, young career at that point, because I was just finishing grad school, uh, I was first a research assistant at University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, where Travis Carter was at the time. So along that time, uh, University of Chicago had this partnership with the Museum of Science and Industry where they would run these surveys about sort of experience materialism, some of Travis's papers from about a decade ago. And that was kind of cool at the time, but then that sort of theme popped up again because when I went to Wharton for grad school, Cindy Chan, who was a grad student there and now uh, is a professor at uh, University of Toronto, and I think had published a 2017 paper about material experiential that won the Ferber, I believe. Uh, she, she was presenting a lot of the earlier drafts of that paper when I was there, and I was always just sort of curious, like, you know, this is something where there are all these studies, they all kind of are in their little silos, like you know, is there some sort of grand unifying theory about this? You know, is there something a bit broader out there that kind of looks outside of the literature? So at the time I emailed Joe and was kind of like, you know, because Joe had several different projects about the topic at the time. And I just sort of like, you know, maybe you're the right person to work on this with. Yeah. And I remember when Evan approached me about it, I was, I was super excited because I'd kind of gotten to know Evan over the years. We'd done some uh, special sessions on on assortment and variety on unrelated things. And uh, I thought, you know, I don't know how much work there is. Are we ready for a meta-analysis on this? And but I I know I've done a lot of work in the material experiential domain. Uh, and and so I was excited about it. And also to to be honest, I was always a skeptic of the experiential recommendation. So I thought, you know, this this might actually get at what I've been trying to do. You know, I mean, I, personally, I, I'm all in favor of buying experiences. And, and by the way, I should, maybe I should clarify that the experiential recommendation is that people should be buying experiences to increase their happiness. But I, I since my first paper in JCR, way, way back, kind of questioning uh, the, the generalizability or, you know, when, what conditions might this not work? Um, I've always kind of been been looking or skeptical about this. So um, uh, 
that got me excited to say, oh, maybe, maybe there's more to this. Uh, maybe there's a um, some uh, file drawer effects, or maybe there's a you know a publication bias, or maybe there's there's other things that we can explore or try to understand the theory. But a, a meta analysis is not something we see too often in in JCR um, or, or or any of our top journals for, for that matter. Um, it's a lot of work, so. Okay, so you guys were keen to do this. Um, tell us all a little bit more, though, about then the work involved, and and I don't know if you've got any um, any lessons learned along the way. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just first say, yeah, you're you're um, you're right on about. I, I think our naivety at the beginning, uh, or uh, <laughs> our our optimism about where where would this paper go, where is this project going to have a home. I think we both wanted it to 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 go into JCR, but we were skeptical about that. So, but you know what? We we liked the idea, and we said, but let's just do the project, see what happens, and and hopefully it'll find a home. We thought JCR was was the right place for it because it's about consumer research. I mean, it, that that's the place. Uh, but it's a it's a huge investment, and I think uh, you know Evan uh, to credit him. Um, can can talk more about that. It, it, just the amount of legwork and 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 digging and getting data and asking people for data over and over and over again, you know, to track it down and then to code everything is is quite a bit of an investment. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the sort of meta analysis thing. Like, I, I think one still props to Joe because I think he did a lot of theoretical insights that really helped kind of clarify things because he's the expert on the literature. Like I was an observer, but he had actually been running studies on it and had better insights on things. And there were definitely some comments I made to him early on that I look back on and kind of cringe about. So th- there's always that. But uh, early on with the meta-analysis, and so it, it's a lot of tedium because you end up spending hours and hours and hours trying to make sure you captured all the papers or that you found everything that exists within a conference or a dissertation or like that like years ago... Uh, I think for a different meta-analysis, I had actually bought Travis Carter's dissertation because the reality is there's some dissertations that you have to physically buy to figure out, not that they have the studies in them, but like, all right, there actually might be a study in there, but I need to double check. It's like there's a lot of tedium and kind of scraping every little part of the universe to kind of find studies and try and figure out what's out there. But the other part of this that's always sort of tricky is that I find, and I really think this is the right approach, and this is something that my advisor sort of uh, back in grad school really championed, was like emailing everyone an Excel file with exactly what their papers are and what the studies are and what the sort of means are from all the conditions and the setups and the manipulations and the dependent measures and trying to say, like, is this right? And then also have this little ask at the end being like, hey, you gave a conference talk about this. Are there any unpublished studies about this? You have a line like the, there's a lot of emailing people, and we emailed a ton of different people. Uh, most of them got back to us and were very nice about things. In the past, I've had not so great interactions, but uh, like people were very friendly with us, and I always kind of worried along the way, like, oh, you know, are people going to respond positively to this? And thankfully, some people were willing to uh, actually sit down and spend a lot of time as well to help us. I think like we got fairly lucky because we're very friendly with some of the people in the literature and several of the people in literature are extremely friendly people. Uh, 
we were very fortunate early on that Amit Kumar, uh, I, I had messaged him and actually flew to Chicago for a wedding and stayed with Franklin Shaddy and set up like a little kind of meet up at a bar where we just kind of talked about the literature for a little bit when I started this. Uh, we reached out for... Is that, is that when you cornered him for the data? I, I hadn't done that yet. That, that, that yeah. one I feel bad about. I should have been more upfront with him about it. But like the... The other kind of awkward thing that happened was we sent out requests for the data and this was summer 2017. And we were like, all right, hopefully people get back to us soon. And it, we kind of learned that it was a mistake to reach out in the summer because everyone's gone. Like there was a huge spike in people who actually got back to us around September 1st-ish or so. Uh, but the one thing that happened, and I, I'll just never forget feeling like more guilty than ever before was Cindy Chan was spending time nine months into being pregnant, helping us get the data. And then was just like, Hey, I have to go to the hospital to give birth. Can I get back to you later? And I was just like, Oh no, I, I look like such a massive asshole. Just like, like, can you hold on just a little longer? Contractions should wait just a little bit. <laughs> right, so you are at the mercy of, of, uh, you know, people cooperating, but I, you know, I think one, one tip and takeaway that I learned from, from Evan is being organized on the author side, uh, and, and giving that to, on, fr from us, Evan was very organized. And then when we sent out those emails, it kind of gave the impression and the message to the people we were contacting that we were serious about this. We'd already done as much work as we can. We weren't being lazy about it and saying, Hey, can you just give us all the, all your means? Like we tried to do as much as we could to help them verify it. And so I think that that also helps. Um, and then also clarifying to people that some people were, con were worried if they can give that, that data, if it, if it was okay, because we don't need the data. Actually, all we need is the means and the <clears throat> standard errors and things like that in the end. So um, clarifying for people that, yeah, you know, you can do this. If it's under review, it's it's still okay to give that data, you know? And so some people were just unfamiliar with meta-analyses and, and what they could share. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it takes a lot of kind of, some people are nervous about it. I, I found that there are some people who just like respond to you immediately and they give you everything and they just, they're super for it. And it's really great when that happens because you feel like, all right, you know, they're on board with the mission. They really want to see this. And that's always very wonderful. I think Tom Gilovich, when he heard about it, was like, oh, let me like reach out to some people for you. Uh, th that's always very heartening because you always worry. Uh, years ago, I was very afraid uh, when I started doing a meta-analysis on the ease of retrieval effect because the person to talk to was Norbert Schwartz. And my email address said wharton.upenn.edu. So, uh, you know, I, I am very thankful to this day that Wes Hutchinson and I emailed Norbert at ACR in Chicago and we're like, can we just talk to you about this? And Norbert sat down with us over lunch and was extremely helpful, gave us a lot of feedback, reached out to people, said, look, they're looking to work on this. And those sort of people championing you along the way is very good because it kind of show support. It shows that people are on your side. It doesn't feel like you're sending out an email and people are just like a meta-analysis. Oh, that's boring. Do something new, like publish something that could be a New York Times headline. Would you guys do a meta-analysis again? I think Evans are, you, you've got some in the works right now, no? I, I'm telling myself I'm working on the last one I'll work on. It's one on anchoring and adjustment. Uh, it is like so tedious and so much and I've had it, like I've been working on it for like three or four years and it's just 
a complete, like, it's so huge and requires so much reading and require, because a lot of different literatures call themselves anchoring and adjusting, and we kind of are looking at the numeric form. So it's, it's like, I'm telling myself this is the last one. Like I got an email recently about doing one on like AI. And I was just like, I can't like, I think my eyes will actually burn out of my head if I do any more beyond this. Yeah. I think, you know, I would be in it, it, I learned a lot from this process and especially from Evan being, being the expert um, methodologically on this. And so part of it is, you know, I want to use those tools again, but I, you know, I think that the key takeaway too, and uh, interested to hear what you have to say about it, Andrew is, is the, the, the key is the, I would be interested in meta analysis that are an- answering or asking important questions. And it might not even come up with the, the, the best answer, Sometimes a meta-analysis asks more questions at the end than it answers, but it's going at a topic that that is interesting and that um, is that that hasn't been addressed in the past, right? Um, or that there's some uncertainty as to what are the drivers or what are the moderators or what are the bigger questions. And so, if if uh, if, if the meta-analysis is is uh, targeted to to a good question, then then I think it's worth pursuing. Yeah, I think I think you know I agree. It's I mean I'd I'd love to see more um, in in all of our journals, um, in part because it's it, it, it they're these sorts of projects that really give us a sense of well we take stock of of sort of the knowledge that's been generated and sort of rigorously go through that. Um, but then, as you say, it 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 poses it should pose tons more questions, which could really then push that area in the discipline uh, further forward. And so I think there can be a really strong impact in uh, sort of spawning new research ideas, um, you know, off of that. So it can sort of be a really nice sort of jump in, in a great direction, but it really does have to be on something that's interesting and relevant and not a sort of um, let's just look back in time and, and take stock of stuff that doesn't, doesn't, actually matter so much anymore. It's a big body of literature, but it's kind of run its course. I think it's got to be, you know, not a meta-analysis that kind of comes, you know, whatever, 30 years, 40 years down the line. Um, but rather something once once there's enough in, in the literature to to actually do the meta-analysis, I think it's it, it's good to strike while the topic is still really hot and important and relevant to the world as opposed to kind of waiting too long. And so I think that's why um, you know, I personally re- you know, really like this, this article because, you know, it, it, it helps move forward this literature and, and it's not a, you know, talking about the experiential advantage. Um, it's not a question that has gone away, right? It's not something that, okay, we've solved that, you know, case closed sort of thing. It's, it's an ongoing, um, area of interest and importance. So therefore it, it warrants kind of, you know, the likes of this paper coming in and saying, all right, kind of, you know, this is what we know. And, you know, here are all the nuances to that. And then here's, you know, a set of, a set of paths forward. Um, so it's a big service that you guys have, have done to the field as well in, in that regard. Well, I will say, you know, I, I, I appreciated the uh, review team to push us, uh, to, in the paper to really think about future directions and what are these implications for future research? You know, a lot of the times we write papers and it's just like a throwaway paragraph at the end about future research. And the review team really said, you know what, we don't want just a paragraph at the end. This has to be more 
baked throughout the process and throughout the paper um, to, to spawn new research, as you said. And, and so that was really refreshing, I think, uh, as an author to be challenged to think about that and, and not, not just, you know, come up with, with conclusions, but be able to ask questions. Yeah, I echo that sentiment. The review team was extremely helpful here. And I think one of the things they also hit on along the way, beyond just the fact that I think one of the sort of crisp things they told us was, look, you got to go into sort of setting up the stage for the future of the literature at some point. Like, what are we learning from this that can sort of set the stage for what this literature needs to do? This literature has been around for almost 20 years. Like, what what, what is... What, what is next for it? What can we learn from what you're saying forward those next steps? I, I think the other thing they had kind of done was push us to also think outside the literature itself to kind of connect it to just sort of a broader theory of happiness. Because one of the things that's very hard or very tempting within meta-analysis is to kind of like use sort of a set of sort of low to the ground kinds of things to code or look at and then sort of reaffirmed the literature unto itself. But we kind of connected things back to self-determination theory after the first round of review because people kind of said, like, look, you know, like, what's sort of the broader thing this taps into? And obviously it's sort of happiness. But uh, on the first submission, you know, I think we went hard on kind of publication bias and kind of thinking about different manipulations in the literature. And it didn't sound as theoretical as it could have. And the review team actually was able to make us sort of think harder about what exactly is relevant theoretically to what's going on? Uh, th- that's sort of a general kind of thing that's relevant for meta-analyses and w- what we can learn from them. Like the best ones are going to have this sort of insight into a broader theoretical framework and show you something about that broader theoretical framework and actually use that to kind of guide what the coding is, what they're going to look at and sort of what the results speak to. And we didn't do that initially as well, but I think we did that a little better after we actually got the push. All right, so guys, last question for you is, you know, what what is next in this literature? Um, where do you think uh, people who are listening to this or maybe working on this topic or doctoral students, for example, interested in, in getting into this area? Um, what, what should folks be thinking about? Yeah, I think t- to me, it, it still amazes me that this started as, in, you know, 2003 and, uh, Van Boven and Gilovich, this amazing paper that seemed kind of like a, an effects paper or just a simple effect that experiences lead to more happiness than material goods. And that, that like little nugget of, of insight spawned this, you know, quite a bit. And, 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 and I don't, I, I think at first it just seemed like a small insight, uh, but it's really changed. I think how we, how we look at, uh, at, at least for me, consumer behavior and how we consume and how it affects happiness. That bigger question of how consumption affects our happiness. And so this has given us a, uh, uh, a model of, of, of how to think about it, but that doesn't mean that it has to be the only model to think about it. Um, and th- there's, so, so I think going forward, there's still a lot that we don't know about um, the antecedents of what makes something an experience or what makes something a material good. Um, we, we also don't really know if, if people change their behavior uh, and, and, and start consuming more experiences, will that actually increase their overall happiness in life? We think it should, but we haven't, t- we, we haven't really tested that. Right. Um, and, and then, 
and, and then we don't really know a lot about what makes um, an experience and how marketers can can help influence what makes a purchase more material or more experiential or, you know, what are the marketing tools that we can have from, from the marketing perspective? So, so there's a practitioner part of it. And then there's also the theoretical uh, understanding of how happiness, what, what are the drivers of, of, of happiness as well? So, yeah, I mean, I could talk about it forever, I, but I, I'm, I still think, and I'm still really interested in, in this topic and how, how it can affect consumer research. Yeah, I think Joe's exactly right on those. I think the other kind of thing that kept reoccurring to me is just this notion that, uh, you know, for many years, the sort of tagline of a lot of this research is like the experiential advantage and, you know, experiences greater than material. And like, you know, it's something where I think the literature needs to kind of turn the corner a bit and actually sort of say, you know, in these cases, we recommend experiences in those cases like it's sort of the opposite, because I think a lot of the literature uh, kind of this isn't a knock on the literature. I think a lot of the time people got excited about this at some point, And there were a lot of sort of uses of that kind of distinction in other fields to inform those other fields. But then the field, but then material experiential itself didn't get as much attention. So I think what the literature needs to do is kind of look back on and, and sort of, as Joe mentioned, kind of think about what is the real definition? What makes something an experience or a material possession? What are these sorts of things? Are these even on the same continuum? Uh, and, and then kind of go a little further and, and kind of say, like, look, like, these are things that should lead to sort of saying the opposite of the experiential advantage. These are things that kind of leads to material advantage and kind of go down that route and kind of provide that sort of insight because that's sort of the next step because otherwise what what you risk with doing a project where the only recommendation is experience greater than material possession is sort of like yeah but like there's 20 years of work that say the same thing you have to kind of say to yourself like what other insight can i provide to practitioners or even academics about when is this going to happen and when is it not going to sort of what are the boundary conditions that sort of could also be kind of interesting here that haven't yet been explored because the literature has looked at a few things that are definitely very interesting, like sort of the valence of the experience. So like socioeconomic status, uh, different things like, is the experience social or not? Like there are some really good earlier papers on this, but I think that there needs to sort of be a continuation for thinking about in what cases are you going to make this recommendation? In what cases are you not? Right. And, 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 one thing we know in consumer behavior is that nothing is true all the time. There's got to be times when material goods are important. And we know that. I mean, we've known that in marketing. Uh, Russ Belk has uh, made a huge contribution of how important possessions are, right? We, we, we know these things. And so I still think there, there's, there's room to better understand when material goods, when possessions are going to be so important to, to who we are. And so that's, um, I'm, I'm still excited about that, uh, whether whether we philosophically agree with that or not. Um, it, it, it's it's a it's an empirical question. So there's a lot lot to look forward to. Thank you, Evan Weingarten and Joe Goodman, the authors of Reexamining the Experiential Advantage in Consumption, a meta analysis and review, published in the April 2021 issue of the Journal of Consumer Research. I'm Andrew Stephen, one of the editors of JCR. Thank you very much for listening. 